0: You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. On this episode, we're very pleased to welcome Bradley S. Klein, a renowned golf journalist specializing in golf course architecture, greenkeeping and agronomy. Bradley's a former PGA Tour caddy, and he was architecture editor of Golf Week magazine for 28 years and the founding editor of Superintendent News. He then moved on to Golf Channel's golfadvisor.com. Bradley holds a doctorate in political science and was a university professor for 14 years, specializing in international relations and political theory. While lecturing, Bradley published his first book on US nuclear deterrence strategy. Bradley left academia in 1999, devoting himself to golf writing on a full-time basis. Since then, he has published nine books on golf architecture and history including Discovering Donald Ross, which won the USGA International Book Award in 2001. In 2006, Klein was inducted into the International Caddy Hall of Fame and was recognized by the American Society of Golf Course Architecture's Donald Ross Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2015. Bradley has served as a consultant on numerous course development and restoration projects, including Old MacDonald at Bandon Dunes, Olympia Fields in Illinois, and Jack Nicholas's boyhood course at Scioto Country Club in Columbus, Ohio. We are honoured and privileged that Bradley has afforded us some time from his busy schedule to join us from his home in Connecticut. We hope that you enjoyed the chat. Hello, Bradley. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. It's great to have you with us. I hope spring is afoot on the East Coast of America, And things are warming up a little in Connecticut.
1: It's 12 degrees Fahrenheit here.
0: Excellent. Uh, A little bit warmer than I expected.
1: 12 degrees.
0: Happy days. Of of more importance, Bradley, have you been able to play any golf yet in 2022?
1: Um, I don't think I've swung a club, much less played golf in two months. The last... Round I played was uh, December sixteenth at Big Canyon Country Club in um, Southern California. That's the last golf ball I've hit. We've had nothing but snow, ice, melt, refreeze, and a succession of uh, you know poet killing winter.
0: That doesn't sound great.
1: Yeah, uh, it's we're, we'll will emerge in the next week and a half.
0: I heard there was some pretty wild weather in New York, uh, which wouldn't be a million miles away from you. Uh, recently in terms of ice storms and ice forming on trees etc cetera, etc cetera, in the last two or three weeks uh
1: well i happen to live exactly in between equidistant boston and uh midtown manhattan but i go to new york all the time i try not to go to boston because of the traffic but uh the weather down there was you know they get some heavy rains and snows occasionally but it melts very fast so um for them it's been a little bit you know all the weather it's interesting the um the ecological crisis that we're facing in terms of long term climate change has meant a, a wild oscillation of the weather. So we get intense rains and then searing heat and more drought and then big snowstorms and then very dry periods. So whatever used to be the case is now, you know, the, uh, the oscilloscope is exaggerated in both directions. That's what we're that's what everybody experiences
0: indeed indeed well i mean all, all we got to do is look across uh, look across to our friends in australia who are getting absolutely milled out about what rain 150 mil apparently due in sydney over the next 24 hours brisbane is, is
1: floating brisbane is floating
0: yeah yeah exactly exactly i've seen some of the some of the pictures of the golf courses and it's it's quite a quite a sight quite a sight Listen, perhaps for those that uh, that have been living under a rock and don't know who you are, yeah. perhaps you give us a quick introduction to who you are and an idea of some of the various hats you have worn and are currently wearing in the golf realm.
1: Yeah, well, that's a long story because, uh, you know, I'm not young anymore. I uh, was born in 1954. I grew up in New York City, uh, the edge of the city. I grew up caddying since the age of 14. And uh, I like to say that once a caddy, always a caddy. So I spent seven summers caddying on the PGA Tour. And um, I've always enjoyed the game through that venue. I had some very good players that I caddied for, including Mm a fellow you might have heard of, Bernhard Langer. I was his first U.S. Tour caddy in uh, 1981-82, briefly. Um, But I've always used the caddying as a portal into the game. So my... uh, Experiences have all been mediated by watching great players. And um, I, uh, for the last, over the last 20 years, uh, I've caddied occasionally at uh, course openings uh, for three, four times for Jack Nicholas, for example. And that was always fun, um, although he never paid me. So I like to joke with him when, he's, when he still owes me 100 bucks around. Um, but uh, I don't You're caddy, a cheap and, caddy. Yeah. Uh, well, I was always writing about it anyway, but um, that was my entry. And so I got to see a lot of golf and I met a lot of people and I met my mentor that way, uh, the great uh, golf writer, Herbert Warren Wind. But all along while I was caddying, I was in graduate school. So I caddied on the tour during the summers back in the late seventies, early eighties. And uh, I earned a PhD in political science uh, with a study of, international relations and political theory. I taught uh, academically as a as an assistant or aspiring professor of political science for 14 years at a couple of universities. And i had a full academic career at that time. And I wrote extensively on uh, nuclear weapons, strategic culture, international relations, did a book on US foreign policy and deterrence. And um, then I kind of gradually was, uh, on my way to a, a tenure post at, at the Clark University in Massachusetts, and I was doing a lot of freelance golf writing at the, uh, at the same time. And what I like to say is that the emphasis shifted. So while I was doing you know, 95% academic work and 5% freelance writing on the side, uh, the scales tipped, almost swung the other way. And um, by 1998, I was writing... On a salaried half time basis for Golf Week magazine as their architecture editor and starting their international ratings panel, the, the, the Golf Week's Best. I had freelanced for Lynx magazine. Uh, my work had appeared in the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and all these other publications. So it was clear where I wanted to go. And I actually made the transition full time at the golf writing in 1998. I resigned my uh, position at, on the eve of a tenure application. Uh, in political science. I don't know whether I would have gotten it, but I knew that I didn't want it. So I left academia formally. I became full-time with Golf Week. And at the same time, I started uh, writing golf books. I did a collection of essays in 1997 called Rough Meditations, followed that up with a, a biography of Donald Ross called Discovering Donald Ross. And that got me into the design consulting business. I started doing a lot of advising to Ross courses regarding restoration at the time. I was really, uh, how should I put it? Uh, I was at the podium haranguing, uh, uh away, uh, and uh, every week on the virtues of restoration tree management or tree removal and classic golf course design. And I got uh, something of a reputation for being a, uh, an ideologue about that. I'm very proud of that. And, um, I like to think that uh, unlike some golf writers on architecture, uh, I took my educational background and basically used it to um, beat the drum on behalf of the cause of restoration. And um, then I write, wrote a series of other books called uh, Club Histories, Desert Forest, Golf Club in Arizona, Sabonic on Long Island. I did a club history of uh, St. George's Golf and Country Club, which is a Devereaux Emmet course, wrote a series of essays and so on. and. Uh, still did a lot of freelance and then I just got tired of the ratings and the travel and the, the hand holding of uh, the outings of these raiders who's oh I had to keep explaining things and so I left golf week on my own 2018 became the architecture editor for uh, golf channel golf advisor did that for two years until they kind of decided to uh what's the word restructure and they let go a big part of their staff. I was part of that termination just on the eve of the COVID pandemic. And so uh, I went on my own, and I became full-time freelance. I started writing a regular column for Golf Course Industry, regularly for the USGA Green Section. Um, I can't even keep track anymore. Uh, Lynx Magazine, um, various publications. And then I uh, really picked up the pace on the consulting. And I've been doing that regularly, and I now sell myself, sell for services, because I know the architects, I know them very well, and I know superintendents. I was also uh, along the way at Golf Week, uh, for example. I was uh, I founded, created a magazine called Superintendent News, and that was uh, gave me great access to uh, golf course managers, and I learned a lot and i started lecturing so uh, without any formal training i became a, a steady lecturer on the circuit for the screenkeepers association the architects pga of america and so on so i've done all that and um now i find myself very busy with uh freelance journalism and with design consulting i've now done uh i think 135 projects i've been involved i've I helped build a golf course for my hometown here in Connecticut. I got Pete Dye to do it for a dollar, and that was a great experience learning construction. Uh, and I now do master plans and construction management of small projects, or I ally myself with golf course architects. And then um, for all sorts of reasons, I got a little bored <laughs> or watching the political scene. I got overly excited because I had spent quite a bit of time with Donald Trump uh, on the golf side. And uh, that was before he became president. And uh, frankly, I was um, disturbed by what I was seeing. So uh, a friend and I, an old colleague academically, we sat down over the last two years and wrote a book, uh, which kind of revived my political science background. It's coming out in six weeks. It's a book called uh, Citizenship Mm -hmm. After Trump, uh, Authoritarianism Versus Democracy in a Post-Pandemic Era. Mm -hmm. And so I'm proud to say that that will be my first academic book in 28 years and my 11th book overall. So, uh, that's what I do for, for a living.
0: Well, it's, it's great to uh, have you back in the, uh, the political science realm. Uh, what can you tell us about the new book before we go on to greenkeeping and consulting and all those good golfy topics?
1: Well, I, you know, it, uh, I'm an old-fashioned lefty in many ways. I'm, uh, I believe in citizenship participation and democracy. Uh, I'm, I've held elective office in my hometown as a member of the Democratic Town Council. I write editorials um, to that effect about the virtues of participation. And I was frankly appalled by the closing down of debate and the increasing antagonism and uh, just bitterness that was going on in the country. And uh, I sat down with a friend and we wrote a book in which we basically make the case for old fashioned participation. We went back and looked at the the ethics and the uh, spirit of the writings of everybody from Plato and Aristotle to um, John Stuart Mill and Hannah Arendt and Jurgen Habermas and all these social theorists who I've been reading for years, and I never really put them aside. And in fact, if you look at my golf writing, my golf writing has always been about the culture, the context, the history of the sport. It's been heavily influenced by the sociological tradition of looking at recreation as part of a culture of a game. And that's included a a deep immersion over the years in everybody from Max Weber and uh, Karl Marx and uh, to... uh, Frederick Law Olmsted and the classic landscape tradition of, uh, so, uh, in that sense, I my, my uh, geography, I used to teach geography, uh, political geography, and uh, so I understand the, the virtue of land, landscape, the importance aesthetically and uh, morally of living in a beautiful environment, living in an environment where you feel embedded in a sort of a natural process, and you're not just surrounded by skyscrapers and paved over streets, and so I think there's something incredibly liberating about golf because it's the only sport that immerses you in this natural environment in a way that's completely unstructured you know i always like to say that uh, the only rule about a golf course in the rule book is that the hole you're playing to is four and a quarter inches across everything else varies the topography the soil the texture of the grasses the mowing heights the length nothing is specified it's the most diverse and compelling of all sports landscapes. And uh, while I have an affinity for all sports and for the arenas and stadiums, and I've written on the history of ballparks, for example, uh, the golf course to me as a sports field and as a playing field and as an engagement with both nature history, is just a fascinating place. The books, when I start the books, I always go back to the, 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 uh, the ice age and the melting and the, uh, you know, in the beginning there was sand. Uh, is my standard opening for a project. And uh, so I think that's a very powerful uh, way for people today, especially to release themselves and feel free and to explore a certain aspect of their lives that is uh, unstructured and not beholden to some kind of authority figure and some sort of regimented uh, mandate. And I, the, the free form play of golf to me um, is is really a very powerful and liberating. And here I am, 67 years old. I'm still working on my golf swing. I still think I can get better. I'm still worried about trajectory. I bemoan the loss of distance, but try to make it up with other things. And so I'm dealing with my body and uh, all sorts of uh, mental and ecological challenges. And there's no other game that provides that kind of uh, opportunity to explore all of those dimensions of being a, a human being that's my brief little philosophy of golf
0: you put that so eloquently thank you for sharing that with us um i know you've as you mentioned you spent some considerable amount of time with former president trump through a previous role as head of uh, course writing for golf week can you share any stories that might provide the listeners additional information about the enigma that is the 45th president of the united states
1: well uh I didn't spend time with the former president. I spent time with the person who went on to become former president. So let's just thank you. (laughs) And, you know, the. uh, He cares very much about his image in the media, and he spent a lot of time cultivating it. And I was one of many people that he did that with Uh, Joe Passov has the same stories. Mike Bamberger has similar stories. He would harangue us, call me on my cell phone, call me at home, start yelling and screaming about ratings and. The short version I can tell you is that uh, one time I'm in my car uh, and the ratings were about to come out and he got hold of the early uh, um, results of the Trump bedminster, course, the first one that Tom Fazio had done. And he was very unhappy about it. And he starts yelling and screaming at me on the phone, which he always does. This was about, I'm going to guess, 2010, 2011, maybe. And, um, he he starts telling me he's you know i got it wrong it's not it's supposed to be higher he said then he says to me uh, i'll do anything it takes i'll take ads out i'll call your boss i'll buy anything and i just i, I had it and i said i'm sorry mr trump i can't have this conversation you're fired <laughs> and i hung up on him and
0: uh so you loved that
1: well and then um i spent a lot of time with him on the scotland project on uh, uh, trump aberdeen i went out there i My wife works in Scotland, and so I would go over there quite a bit. And I would, I think three times I was on site during the preliminary planning, and uh, I came back and I was in his office one time, and I was trying to explain to him why the project wasn't going to work. And I said to him, you know, it's on the northeast, it's the coldest spot in Scotland, uh, on the east coast of Scotland. It's got the morning horror uh, in the afternoon, the Grampian Mountains shut down the sunlight at a certain time. It's windy. Uh, The holes are too severe. There's no relief. There's no rhythm to the golf course. It's all sort of like beating you over the head with the the, the last uh, notes of Beethoven's Ninth. And uh, there's nothing in terms of a feel of rhythm. And he just, he wasn't listening, you know. So I have a photo of me at the moment in his office pointing to a map showing him. And I I love showing that photo. Um, So... You know, he was difficult to deal with because he wasn't listening. The other thing that's relevant is that not only was he always right, but he, he, was, he would say whatever, manufactured all sorts of nonsense just to make his point. And it was clear to me even then that uh, he didn't know that he was lying. These were not manipulated, deliberate um, mistruths on his part. This was he believed it, what he was saying. But it uh, also—he was incredibly uh, insensitive and and, uh, insecure about what he thought people thought of his right of his work at the time of of him, and uh, that's all he concerned himself with image. So, you know, and that in those days it was just golf, so it was you know it was harmless. That's all changed, and I found that, uh, say the least, um, terrifying. Uh, It's one thing to create an image about your property it's another thing to create an image about the world so that that concerned me as a as a citizen so um and and along the way i've probably antagonized some people you know the the golf industry is fairly conservative superintendents are particularly conservative and i have respect for that um in that sense the ethic is like a that of a farmer Uh, they're deeply embedded in nature Uh, they work really hard their work is not properly um, compensated uh, they have to go. They endure a lot of abuse from golfers, no matter what they do. It's never good enough. So I understand that ethic, and I and I have great respect for it. So uh, sometimes politically, and you know, I got to be a little bit uh, and modulate my views in front of them, uh, because it, you know if I'm lecturing about golf and bunkers and sand and 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 the, and the environment, uh, the politics can recede into the background. So well, that's fine. I don't. Uh, I kind of find that interesting to deal with culturally i love superintendents i think they're fascinating i think they're deeply underappreciated and then i'm very proud of uh, having spent a lot of time writing uh, about what they do and how they can do their job better and that's part of my consulting as well i work with them very closely
0: arguably bradley the superintendents are the heroes of the game uh the the unseen heroes who obviously prepared the test for the golfer on a daily basis and uh i know we will get to a question later on about uh how perhaps they're they're not as appreciated as they might be maybe we can take a look at your caddying for a second uh while you were completing your phd as you said you caddied in the pga tour with contemporaries such as mike fluff cowan who went on to obviously caddy for tiger woods and uh indeed uh, i I had him when he was
1: he was caddying for ed sabo This is before Peter Jacobson, and we would travel around in Mike's, uh, this was 1977, uh, I went to uh, a, we caddied together at the U.S. Open at Southern Hills with about 109 degrees and unbelievable humidity, and uh, we wore these uh, sort of the same jackets or coats uh, over that you'd wear if you were pumping gas at a gas station it was unbearably hot. Most of us caddied, and we all we wore was a, a swimsuit, a t-shirt, and that. And it was just unbearable. <laughs> and uh, there, there were we would travel in his blue Chevy van, and uh, it was an experience. And I travel. I remember traveling with him from Tulsa to Columbus, Ohio, to caddy at the uh, at that year. We traveled around quite a bit of time. It's four in a room, you know. In those days, uh, the total purse for a tournament might be two hundred thousand dollars. Now that's a seven-way tie for sixth place. In those days, two hundred thousand was a total purse. So uh, you know, if I if I if the first time I caddied for Langer, nineteen eighty-one World Series, and he uh, he tied for sixth place, and I he won fourteen thousand, which was a lot back then. That was a half million dollar tournament. Total purse. He won fourteen thousand. I made about seven hundred dollars and that was a big check. But normally you were making hundred fifty a week. And uh
0: plus Eaking out a living.
1: Well you cat in pro ams, you you know, you have four in a room, staying over, dining dash, all that stuff. Whatever it took to get by. Yeah.
0: Sounds delightful.
1: It was great. I loved it. It was the best time most fun I've ever had.
0: Good stuff. Do you feel that your looping days prepared you in any way for your f- future writing and research endeavors in golf?
1: Oh, absolutely, because uh, you learn to read people's character. Um, you know, there are a lot of great virtues, um, not just for, for individual development, but for the game itself. And I've, I've got a whole lecture uh, I, I have on the uh, what we've lost in terms of recruitment into the game and future players. And the thing you learn as caddy. You learn to judge people's character. You learn to get done quickly. I always think pace of play has suffered as a result. Uh, you learn to, well. You learn to show up at 5:30 in the morning sober. That's a great skill. You know, if more people did that, we'd all be better off. Uh, and uh, you learn. You, you know, I always like to say is rich people can be just as stupid as anybody, and you find that out on a golf course. So uh, everybody gets. Uh, reduced to the same level. They're struggling uh, and they're making excuses or they blame you or they're they're humble about it. You learn a lot about people's character on a golf course. And you learn, I, I always like to say that I developed my uh, kind of bullshit detector, my uh, GPS bullshit detector by watching people play golf. And you learn uh, they're all the same. So um, it was a great skill and uh, I loved it I absolutely loved knowing the golf course I knew that the, the the marker over there on the side was supposed to be 150 it was actually 158 and I wouldn't tell anybody and I knew that and uh, I knew the golf course I could when I, from the age of 14 I could read a golf course I knew the strategy and I started and that really got me ahead in many ways so it was a great skill and I loved being inside the ropes knowing as I always say, the outsider is insider. Uh, there's a certain kind of alienation effect that you have as a caddy because you're not really part of things. I was caddying at a very wealthy country club, and all these people rolled up in fancy cars, and they had their girlfriends, there, and and uh, and everybody was sleeping with everybody else, you assume. And um, I, I was caddying for the property manager of the Empire State Building, and he didn't know how to sign the check for nine holes or 18 holes on the caddy. Shit that I gave him, and I thought this is great. This guy is running the world, the Empire State Building, and he can't figure out a nine-hole or an eighteen-hole box. Never
0: it's pretty that. complex. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: so it made me feel I came from a uh, not working class, but uh, my father was an engineer. Uh, my mother was stay-at-home. Uh, we had two uh, two brothers, but uh, the golf was an entry into a different world. It was a very wealthy world. It was a powerful, but it was also a lot of uh, veneer and pretense and posturing. And so, to learn how to negotiate that, and I learned never to be afraid of anybody. Um, it was a great skill.
0: I mean, I've, I've heard you speak about uh, perhaps an internal confidence that emanates from you when you're caddying. Yeah. You appear, if I'm if I'm correct in in this, and apologies if I'm not, to be a kind of an analytical type of person. Yeah. Do you think that 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 the best caddies exhibit this sort of personality type?
1: Uh, I can't tell anymore because when I listened to Michael uh, Greer, Greer, I think his name. Uh, Greller, yeah? talked to uh, Jordan Spieth. I want to strangle somebody. It's like, why? Just shut the hell up! <laughs> <laughs> because what you do as a caddy is, I knew, I knew the yardage, I knew the wind, I knew. Uh, the elevation. I knew the brake. I knew where it was going. And I was just, uh, you wait. And he says, what do you think? I said, solid eight iron. That's it. Shut up and hit it. That's all. All this other crap that they talk about, endless analytical nonsense. To me, it drives me nuts. So I think the best caddies, you take a lot of knowledge and you condense it into a communication mode that is clear, uncluttered, and direct. Uh, One of the lessons I learned this was Don Pooley at Tulsa Hills when I had him at uh, at Southern Hills in Tulsa for the open in 77. I, I said something in a practice round, I said, don't hit it left. And he said, I never want to hear no. Don't ever tell me no. It's all positive. So you just affirm a message and move forward. And I think some of the caddies today, because they're in the business, you know, they're not just people who wandered into the game anymore. You, a lot of them are scratch golfers, former tour players, they're psychologists. They're all sorts of uh, professional business managers that do this. Uh, they get overly analytical and I it drives me nuts. The other thing that drives me crazy, uh, it's a kind of pebble beach effect, is that the caddy is trying to justify their fee at a club level. And uh, they give you all this extraneous nonsense and it's like, who you or, or they start telling you about, this is the spot at which Al Guyberger, you know, Birdie, the ninth, the, the ninth hole at Memphis Country Club to shoot 59. It's like, shut up. You're not the show. So it drives <laughs> me nuts when a caddy thinks that they're, the, they're there to impress you. So one of the things I do when I take a caddy is I say, uh, keep it simple. I try to downplay, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, humor myself. I said I can't handle a lot of information. Just give me center of the green. I'm a a career fourteen handicap. I can't shoot for pins anyway, so I just tell them just all I need is simple stuff. Uh, And I like to read my own putts. I don't really want a caddy to tell unless it's a birdie putt. You know, then (laughs) then it's unless
0: it matters. (laughs) Uh,
1: But I love to read my own greens, and I and so one of the things I try to do. I'm kind of an asshole about this actually. I'll I'll always tell the caddy what the yardage is because I can gauge figure out I can eyeball it within a few yards and then I can also sneak a look at a sprinkler head and walk it off because I know my paces are exactly a yard I'm still at the age where I measure my steps all the time I want to make sure I'm still stepping at a yard so I and as you get older you have to stretch a little more but I so I know the 167 I'll walk it off very casually you know 13 steps I know it's 154 I just tell them you know give me a six iron and uh I try to sort of I don't tell them what I really do for a living or how, you know, they kind of figure I know what I'm doing, but I I like to sort of uh, learn the golf course myself. And I I always, I never ask a caddy about putting over the first four or five holes. If I'm struggling, then I'll ask her if I, but I want to kind of try to figure things out myself. So I, and I have to tell the caddy that it's like, you know, hold off, first thing you learn first rule you learn about a caddy is judge your person. Everybody's different. Some people need handholding. Some people are complete emotional cripples. Others are confident assholes and they, they know everything. So you just, you know, make adjustments rather than one style.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I understand as a student, uh, you managed to somehow engineer a month long research day in the old grade two in St. Andrews where, funnily enough, you caddied and you played a bit of golf as, as often as possible on the old course. What effect do you think this experience had on a 20-something Bradley Klein?
1: Uh, I was 26, and uh, what was I doing over there? 1980. I was uh, going to Germany for a uh, intensive workshop. In I, was, I, I, I studied German and became fluent in it, and on the way, I stopped off in Scotland and kind of caddied my way around, uh, Scotland, not for the first time that I caddied there, but I did it regularly at the uh, in St. Andrews. And, um, so I showed up every morning for a month. This was during, this was September, 1980 during their, uh, the RNA club matches. So, um, I caddied, uh, every day and it was great. It was an amazing experience. Cause I learned the golf course because I would show up early and then I realized I didn't need to show up that early so I would show up early and play and then I'd, I'd finish at 9.30 or 10 o'clock and then I'd put my bag away and then sit in the caddy yard and then I'd caddy and I did that every, and so I paid for my stay for a month and um, I learned the golf course I was there for the uh, when the, the captain played his way in at one point I caddied for uh, Reed McKenzie uh, who was then secretary of the RNA and uh, this was during the club matches and um we we talked a little bit i was very careful with him um and uh we're coming up 17 i guess it was they were playing the south africans in a match and uh i had i was wearing a tweed jacket i had an old tweed jacket um, and um he said to me uh what are you doing later today oh Hanging out. He says, why don't you come back up and join us for dinner? So Brilliant. I went back to my little bed and breakfast. I think I was paying five pounds a night. It certainly wasn't more than that. And it drove, my, drove the lady crazy who ran the B&B because she had to get breakfast for me at five in the morning. Uh, normally, they, they don't serve till seven. So I, I said, just give me a cold breakfast. Don't cook anything. She was very thrown off because they like to throw this big Scottish, you know, bacon, uh, eggs, and uh, all that junk fat meat they throw at you at the breakfast. So I just took a cold breakfast, went out. Anyway, I ran back to my uh, little room, put a tie on, went down, and um, joined uh, McKenzie and the South African team. We went to, I think it was Niblick Restaurant, which is right down the street. Mm -hmm. And we had this big dinner. And then uh, we went back to uh, McKenzie's office and watched a film of the '78 Open, in which Nicholas beat... I think a New Zealander. I can't remember his, his name. Um, it was a pretty good. Co- anyway, we sat there and drank, and I got a tour. Mackenzie Simon
0: Simon Owen. I Simon think, Owen. Was it the I, uh,
1: and then yeah. uh, Mr. Mackenzie gave me a tour of the clubhouse and all the. And you know, I thought it was pretty cool. I'm just a caddy, but I wasn't just a caddy. Uh, and I, um, I got a tour with a drink in hand. the the inside of the clubhouse. And I thought, this is really cool. And uh, at the time I was doing research on U.S. foreign policy, I had access to the archives. I was looking at the correspondence between uh, Churchill and um, Roosevelt, I guess, and also Chamberlain. And um, so I would spend some of the time nominally doing research, but really I was outside researching the old course. And at one point I managed, I looked on the the T-sheet and I see the name of um well i'm going to forget the name of the golf writer now uh, who was it pat lord thomas uh-huh. who was herb wins equivalent of counterpart in um, britain and i see he's on the t-sheet tomorrow and i oh i would love to caddy for him and i couldn't figure out how to do it so i went up and down every hotel on the scores with a, a note and said uh i'm so-and-so uh, I love the game. I have a letter of introduction from Herbert Warren Wind, which I had. Uh, in those days, you took a letter of introduction around to you, you know. And I was playing Muirfield. I got it. I got in that way. And anyway, I had a letter of introduction. I said, "Look to caddy tree tomorrow at eleven o'clock. Please ask for me." And I went. I think I went up and down about fifteen hotels and handed it to every uh, desk manager because I didn't know where he was staying. And uh, the next morning. He sh- this old withered guy shows up with a piece of paper and he unfolds it. And I see him ask, there's the caddy master, Angus. In those days, the caddy master's shed was were behind the 18th green. It's, it was that green shop that's now kind of pro shop. It, they didn't, we didn't sit over in the corner, the, on the corner on the beach side of the clubhouse for the first tee like they do now. Anyway, I see this old withered guy and he unfolds a piece of paper and I recognize, hey, that's my piece of paper. And he asked for me and they point to me and I went out a caddy for Pat Ward Thomas, and I wrote about it. It was a great experience, and um, he was sort of sick and not in very good health, and all these great stories, and the one I'll never forget, um, where he gets on the first ticket, he's got this enormous club, this driver, it's like, he's this frail little man, he couldn't have weighed more than 115 pounds, and he's smoking away like crazy. Uh, He looked like he just arose from the grave, and uh, he's got this enormous club, and I I looked at it. He says, "Personal gift of Arnold Palmer," and he wow. he swings it at about forty-eight miles an hour and dips the ball down the fairway. Anyway, we get to the eleventh hole, uh, the high hole, par three, and he, of course he puts mm-hmm. it in strap bunker, and uh, he's trying to hit out. He's flailing away, goes nowhere, and then he looks up and he sees a, a an airplane with a the contrail. Of the airplane and he yells and he's he, he just he says "Fucking raf ought to be disbanded <laughs> now that's kind of precious stuff you can't get anyway he was great uh yeah. and i wrote a story about him uh catting for pat ward thomas of the old course it was uh, came out in the u.s and it's, it's reprinted in my uh collection of essays uh, rough meditations but i learned the short version is i learned the old course and I've got yeah. the map right in front of me as we speak. And of course, you know, the old Mackenzie drawing from 1924, like everybody does.
0: Excellent. Well, it, it, it reminds you of those good times, I'm sure, when you when you look upwards.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it reminds me of the time I shot, I uh, went out there, I shot 40-50. Uh, okay. Tried to break 90, couldn't do it, but, uh, you
0: know. And was that, was that your best round around the old course? Yeah, yeah. They say it's, it, takes, uh, it, it takes time to, to, to understand it and to, to fall in love with it. It, uh, it. it reveals itself slowly. Would that have been your experience?
1: Uh, no, I was instantly fascinated by it. Um, the first time I, I played it, actually, was 1975. I had gone over while I was in college. I went around uh, Scotland, for six weeks and I, all I had was a backpack and a golf bag and I played the, the old course back then I don't remember much about it except I enjoyed it but 1980 I could walk it every day and that you know you learn everything about it and one of the fascinating things about the old course you could walk it on a Sunday because it's closed of course so that was a real eye-opener to see it, it became a public park with people with dogs and the tram uh, the yeah. grannies with their baby baskets and all, and that was fascinating. So you sort of just explore it, and um, I learned a lot, you know. I and I was reading a lot at the time. I had books with me that I, or I bought them right there on the bookshelf, and really immersed myself in in studying every aspect of it, learning the names of the bunkers and so on. Um, You learn... you learn where the ball's going. I, and one of the things I learned about it from then um, is that uh, golf course architecture, and I always love to say it this way, golf course architecture is about what happens when the ball hits the ground. It's not what happens when it's in the air. And um, I learned that comparing the tour golf with everyday golf. And even when the ball hits the ground for tour pros, they hate it. So they want to control what happens.
0: It's much more interesting to watch when the ball is moving on them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or as Peter Thompson says, uh, hitting greens is easy. Staying on them is the hard part. And one of the great moments I had that I've actually only been to one open championship. Um, that was 1990 with Faldo. And uh, I'm proud to say that when he came up 18, I was in that scrum. I was all excited, but I was covering it as a, as a reporter. And I got to spend two hours with Peter Thompson, um, sitting in the stands behind and just talking to him i still have i have a tape i I interviewed him and i have it on tape Mm -hmm. and it was a really powerful moment for me
0: if we if we just move move on to your to your some of your golf writing if you would uh uh you won the usga international book award in 20 sorry 2001 for your book on Donald Ross, a mighty tome that chronicles his life, his work, and the the times of one of the most prominent and well-regarded US-based designers of the first golden age. Can you tell us what influence Ross had on golf's development in the USA and indeed why it is that many courses may misattribute their original designs to the great man from Dornock?
1: Well, in many ways, uh, Ross was a very humble guy. He came from very modest circumstances. His father was a a stonemason who actually built uh, the uh, state capital in Albany, New York, uh, and then came back and kind of squandered all their money by drinking it away. He was a bit of a bum, uh, but his mother was very humble. Uh, he had a big family a living in a small cottage right there in Dornick, and um, he taught himself the game. Uh, he was a great player. He was a greenkeeper. He was an equipment uh, uh, man- you know, a club maker. <coughs> Not a very pronounced, uh, not a very famous one, but he he knew all the trades that you could do. And he built an empire, um, coming to the United States, virtually penniless in um, April of 1899 with the promise of a job at Oakley Country Club. And he spent six years here on his own. At the time, he was uh, affianced, engaged um, to his future wife and he spent six years building up a trove so that he could bring her back, bring her to the United States. And it took six years. And that that's a long, hard period to go on your own. This was obviously in a different world. You know, you don't have the kind of connections of phone and email and all this other stuff. He's writing letters. And um, during that time, he, he created a clear sense of what he could do and also that he brought the game and design to a. The level of Lynx-inspired sophistication, but suitable to an inland terrain. And the big difficulty for golf design is when it moved from the coast into the interior. Uh, that's when all the sort of goofy, weird, uh, uh, pyramidal, uh, steeplechase mounding and very awkward things were created at first, experimenting with uh, getting hazards to, to function Uh, because they didn't really understand drainage. And this was a big issue both in Britain and in the United States. And um, because it's one thing to build a golf course on sand, it drains easily, there's wind, uh, turf takes and um, in a heavy clay soil that doesn't uh, drain well and that's not all that fertile, adding nutrients and all the skills that are required to cultivate quality turf grass and to keep it uh, those were hard and difficult years of training for people. And, um, you know, it, I, I don't think we give enough credit to the agronomic side of architecture. When you look at the writings of Horace uh, Hutchins, uh, Hutchinson, for example, and McKenzie and Colt, they understood soils, they understood grasses, they understood nutrients and fertilizer, and Ross did too. So it was that whole skill set. It wasn't just playing. It was turf grass quality um, that was shown to sustain a playing field. Um, Now, obviously they were also working at a time when you were making the transition to the modern golf ball, um, from the gutta percha to the rubber core ball. And you were uh, still dealing at at the time with um, wooden shafts, which were fairly unreliable. So, and the carries were different obviously, It was a prodigious shot to hit a ball 200 yards in the air back. And so it was all ground game. And so they learned to uh, create obstacles and to create interesting ways to tack your way to the green. And uh, their placement, particularly you look at Ross the evolution of his golf design. It started with a more arbitrary scattering of bunkers. It became a little more rationalized and strategic as his career developed and his he started doing more courses, and, and then the steel shafts and the sand wedges toward the end of his career really uh, changed even his own approach. So there was an evolution in, his, in the phases of his design. But what he, what he and his contemporaries, not just Ross, what he and his contemporaries brought was an understanding of the way in which you were playing an aerial game over ground features. And that integration, that offense and defense, I always like to say, uh, you were both attacking and defending at the same time. And nowadays, it's become segregated. So it's the tour pro uh, who, who plays the, the the vertical power game and offense, and it's the superintendent and the architect who play the defense game. But in those days, you were designing simultaneously. And so you created – sometimes you were just filling up space. or You couldn't get an area to grow, so you put a hazard there. Um, or other times, that was just where the animals were hiding because of the wind so that, that you couldn't grow turf, and that became a bunker. So much more um, – what's the word? seemingly random placement of bunkers, but it always had a purpose to it. And um, Ross brought that skill in. And what he did that was different than all of his contemporaries is he was able to mass produce it. He was the Henry Ford of golf architecture because he could, he'd walk, he had two associates who worked with him for 20 20 years, um, Walter Hatch and J.B. McGovern. Uh, and they were hired in around nineteen sixteen, and so what Ross developed was a skill where you walk the course, put it on a drawing, put it on a a a, a graph paper, so you had a sense of uh, two dimensional scale, and then you put the elevations in, and then you handed it to a contractor or a shaping team or a bunch of guys who were essentially farmers pulling out uh, using draft animals and hand labor and wheelbarrows, and you could take. The land, put it on a two-dimensional scale, make it look with depth in three dimensions, hand it, and you had the whole uh, craft of golf course construction where you go from vision to plan to implementation. That's what Ross did that nobody else did in a much more scientific uh, and mass-produced way. So by 1922-23, he was creating 25, 30 golf courses a year. Nobody was working on that scale. Uh, for better or worse. I always find it funny. You know, you, you go on one of these websites like Golf Club Atlas and they decry an architect who's, mass, who's doing a lot of work and doesn't visit. Well, Ross did 410 golf courses in his career. Uh, uh, maybe a third of them were nine hole expansions or renovations, but <laughs> a third of them he never visited. He just used a, <laughs> a topo map from his office at Pinehurst, <laughs> or he might have visited once or twice. And he had an ability to translate that in a way that could be produced. Now, not every golf course he built was great. Uh, but a lot of them were really good. And and usually the ones that he spent time on uh, returned to. So one of the things I tried to do in that book is document his travel and his uh, ability to get around by train uh, and by car a little bit, but train travel to create uh, a route so that he would sequence his trips through the... Uh, you know he'd go to chicago and then he'd go to milwaukee or he'd go to chicago and then minneapolis and then duluth or he'd go down the florida east coast or he'd go to mobile alabama but then come back through memphis and then work his way up uh, into columbus ohio so th- those uh, work patterns that he developed were really fascinating and i i tried to document them through uh, peeling through his schedule his i had his di- telegrams i had his diaries in my hand uh, I spent a lot of time in the library down at the tufts archives in pinehurst but also going to various clubs and um i had access to his family records although i have to say that it was frustrating because the family kind of withheld a lot of material they still have hold on design plans that clubs have not seen it was very frustrating they wanted uh they wanted me to do an authorized biography in which they would have approval. And I refused. I was not going to give them or anybody uh, the right to tell me what I could and could not write in that book. I'm I'm a trained researcher. I spend my time in libraries. I, you know, uh, I know how to go through records. That's what I did when I got my PhD to get my PhD. So I wasn't going to let somebody who would be offended uh, by something I might've said about Ross's attitude toward people, uh, um, but I, I did my research. I went to every house that he ever lived in. Uh, you know, it might've been in Worcester at 821 Pleasant Avenue where he lived for two years during World War One. I. I went there and stood outside, uh, at Sakonic, um, in Rhode Island. I actually slept in the house. Uh, I went to his home in Dornock, obviously, uh, pioneers. I walked every one of the houses that he was at. Uh, so you sort of relive an experience and, what it was like to to be Donald Ross, I guess, and it helped that I spent a lot of time looking at church history and the the particular strand of austere Presbyterianism that he espoused as a a religious man, as a man of faith, uh, visiting churchyards, visiting family graves in Scotland and all. And um, so you sort of immerse yourself in that life. And in that sense, it was a, a very, um, it was an immersive experience to do it. It was helped, I have to say, by my wife. This is a weird connection. She's a cultural anthropologist and her field of Scottish fishing villages. That's not why I married her, but it turned out. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time in Scotland, but she also helped me understand the culture and the ethos of, of, uh, and how hard everyday life was in a small village in Scotland. And so that was a very powerful element that I conveyed um in the book and um along with just the travel and the uh, the kind of contrast between his upbringing and the circle that he ended up living around you know by the 19 mid 20s he was the highest paid person in the entire golf industry he was making about 80,000 a year with all of his design work he was making more than Walter Hagen uh and um but it never, it never changed his uh, austere approach to his work, to people, and to the game of golf. And so I tried to convey that uh, in the book.
0: Uh, you often hear commentators, and maybe lazy commentators is a better description, speak of Ross-style greens, somewhat similar to the number two course in Pinehurst. Can we ever say that there's a Ross style grain or is that just uh, grasping at straws?
1: Well, this is a big part of my book is that the first thing you learn is that the Pinehurst style is completely anomalous. It has nothing to do with Donald Ross style. It bears almost no relationship to the bulk of his work and it's a unique product. And what we see down at Pinehurst are these raised platforms that fall off precipitously on the edge turtleback grains, in effect. And that's a function of all sorts of strange construction techniques, uh, aggressive top dressing, reconstruction long after Ross left, and the fact that all of those, if you look carefully, the exact height of those grains at Pinehurst are built from the sand and the soil right around the edges, so that there's a relationship between the rise of the filth bed and the kickoff surrounds. Now, those drain well, those surrounds, those are hard to achieve. And so everybody who tries to do uh, short grass surrounds around a green in a northern climate with clay gets stuck because it doesn't drain. It doesn't work. Uh, But they also, the the relationship of the surface and the fall off and the steepness, you don't find that elsewhere. That's not a standard raw spring. It's exactly the opposite. And it was Pete Dye who put me onto that, and Pete wrote the, uh, the introduction, the preface to the book, and made a point of that. There are all sorts of theories about how that evolved. But uh, what you learn from looking seriously at Ross courses is the beauty and the complexity and the variety of the grains and the contours and how they work uh, to create movement and yet um, just elegant, beautiful surfaces uh, that he shaped out by hand, so to speak, or by animal and draft and by tractor or a wheelbarrow and shovel. So what you appreciate most of all is the variety of his grains and then the variety of his bunkering. He had flat floored bunkering. He had flashed up bunkering. It depended on the soil. He had bunkers that picked up the back and fell off steeply. He had others that were basically a grade. Um, there's no rule or rhyme. I love it when I go around with some, Oh, Ross never put bunkers behind the grain. Oh, he did it. Sayota Ross never put bunkers on the outside of a dog. Well, you look at the, The um, fifth hole at Augusta Country Club, there's a, he did there, did a lot of places. So I love going around with experts and I just, it's like, you taught, I'm just going to sit and listen here because they don't know what they're talking about. So all these notions of rules and all that, it's total nonsense. That's why even today, when I hear someone say that they're a Ross expert uh, on design or restoration, that's a marketing ploy. Any good architect, I heard this from Gil Hans at Worcester, Uh, Worcester Country Club, which is a very fine course, circa 1913, very early in Ross's career, great distinguished uh, tournament history. They had the uh, 25 U.S. Open. They had a Ryder Cup there, and they had the 61 Women's Open. And uh, Gil was doing a restoration now, and one of the first things they asked him in the interview, are you a Ross expert? And he said, I'm going to be an expert at what Ross did here at Worcester. I love that answer. It's totally different than you know sciota is littered with was littered with cross bunkers they disappeared over the years andrew green has brought them back um, so and then you look at salem country club uh 1926 27 by ross very strategic limited sparse bunkering patterns on inside of dog legs so very different approach and that's the beauty of Ross. You have to study what he did at that site at that moment. Um, and that's what I learned. Uh, so Ross created a lot of variety.
0: Um, that's the most important thing he did. It's, it, it's interesting that you mentioned Gil Hans's comment about being an expert at what Donald Ross did. Um, I actually read recently a tweet from Brian Schneider of uh, Renaissance Design that, uh, whatever golf course, and forgive me, it might be Old Barnwell; it could be somewhere else. But he basically said that he would be an expert at whatever De- Devro Emmett did on the site. So it's all about context. It's all about, I guess, exploring the what was there before, and I guess being an expert in that, and and that's pertinent and germane to the site as opposed to as opposed to anything else.
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, there are certain characteristic elements that are the Emmet is a good example. Actually, you can always kind of tell the scatter shot. The necklace bunkering, the cross bunkers, the, uh, the the pearls of wisdom that he would surround the green with occasionally. You'll see that here and there, uh, but he, he did it sparingly. Um, and um, it, 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 actually, it's a great example to see how contrasting that is with a you know a Robert Trent Jones approach where you're senior, where you're putting bunkers left and right at 260 and asking people to play down the middle of that as opposed to a scattershot. But you have to study very carefully. That doesn't mean that you do, that you go back to that exactly, because in, men, in some cases those elements, maybe the bunkers couldn't be maintained or they're irrelevant or they overly punish the high handicapper and uh, there are no consequence to the low handicapper. So you want to ma- see if you can shift them downfield a little bit. But it's very helpful to have those resources. And um, we now have access to those kind of historic documents, aerials drawings, um, uh, sometimes even LIDAR, you can pull it out of the ground, ground imagery, to see what was there so you have a, a sense of the evolution of it. Um, um, and then you decide what to do with it. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can be a slavish devotee of what was there, or you can uh, decide how to adapt it, or in some cases, which we did in the 60s, the industry did in the 60s and 70s, is you can obliterate everything and just create something on top of it, yeah. uh, which is what unfortunately happened to a lot of golf courses.
0: Like, I guess back then, really, these courses were maybe only 20, 30, 40 years old. So they were maybe not quite seeing the same sort of reverence that they perhaps would be now. And I guess post Second World War, things changed and priorities changed and philosophies changed
1: well the biggest changes no matter what were trees grew in to overcome i I just saw some photos of the addington and how that got completely squeezed down and now it's being pulled back out um so you open up so the first thing that everybody did inland was they got overgrown then the the greens started to shrink into circles for all sorts of reasons of maintenance and mowing and then the bunkers eroded the faces built up and the, the bunker got both deeper and higher but also flashed sand into the green so you lost the the original contour and then of course you have these idiot green chairmen uh, who who think that everything needs to be lengthened or made more difficult or uh, you know we got to toughen up our golf course Um, and uh, so the result was and also there's a certain kind of uh, modernist arrogance that took over particularly after World War II uh, turning your back on the past and Progress and moving forward, and embracing technology, and, and and the other thing is you're building with, you know, D fives and D sixes and these big highway road builders where you can't get any subtlety. So I always like to say that the, the subtlety of a golf course is directly related to the equipment you're using. If you're using uh, mini excavators, for example, and Bobcats as opposed to massive highway road uh, bulldozers, you can get a lot more interest and shape and character to a golf course. So all these courses evolve or got destroyed in the process um, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, The other one that was a big disaster was irrigation because uh, for, for 60 years, you could not get water from a center line irrigation head to throw more than a total of 90 feet. So your irrigated fairway all got reduced to 30 yards. because everybody ran a center line down what had been 50 60 yard wide fairways and so the outside area that couldn't be reached um, died out or got converted to rough and then as trees came in and closed that off and and they grew up you ended up with these narrow ribbons that were completely contrary to the original design now with multi-row irrigation and heads that throw the water actually a shorter distance but more efficiently uh, instead of single row irrigation you have three four head lines of heads in a fairway, you have much more control. You can actually expand the fairway and still use less water. When you're throwing water 90 feet, 40, 50% of it never reaches the ground because it evaporates or blows away. If you're throwing water 50 feet or 60 feet, you have much more efficient application. So the modern irrigation systems, you know, an old course with centerline irrigation might've had 450 heads. The modern golf course now has 2,200 heads uh, so it's a little more expensive to install per unit, but you're using a lot less water because you're being more efficient how you can apply it. So you can actually create wider uh, fairways and use less water overall. So the combination, uh, along with different mowing equipment and um, uh, you know walking units as opposed to triplex or hydraulic triplex, now that are so flexible, they're actually as good as a walking mower. All the equipment technology, we could get into that, allows you to recreate a lot of the shape, character, edges, and scale that you had lost over the years.
0: In much of your consultancy work seems to be focused on educating golf clubs and, indeed, obviously, their memberships towards the development of their collective golfing IQs. To your mind, what elements of additional understanding are required in the development of a golfer's golfing IQ?
1: The first thing I try to convey to members is they don't know what the hell they're talking about. That's the, the And the way to do that, I try to be kind of polite This is my old classroom demeanor, Um, is you explain to them that 95% of what it takes to make a golf course work is underground, uh, invisible, and you don't even know what's going on. If that's not working, then the visible surface isn't going to function. But you don't understand the irrigation, the water quality, chemistry, soil, root structure, uh, microbiology. Somebody else does. you got to bring them in so the first thing i try to do is explain to them that there's a structure to a golf course and you're only seeing the superficial results of a structure that's either working or in many cases not working so let's go look at that infrastructure the second thing is i do not believe in going into a golf course and preaching restoration it's a disaster because that's an aesthetic choice and all of these websites with all these self-appointed experts who think that oh we got to restore this golf course, because it's, no, what you have to do is identify a problem that you're going to solve. Our drainage sucks. Irrigation doesn't work. Uh, we, we don't have enough air movement. Or the bunkers uh, are dysfunctional because they're so far set back that they only that they punish the high handicapper. Or the greens don't have enough uh, pin placements because they've become too slope or Because their slopes are not suitable for modern agronomy. You identify the problem, you propose a solution technically, and then when you put it back, you put it back in the style that you want. Probably restoration. But you don't go in, and you'll antagonize a membership. Is We got to restore our Colt and Allison golf course because they were great designers, and Allison spent time in Japan, and you knew what he was talking about. That's irrelevant to most golfers. They want to have a fun surface, enjoyable, play golf. They'd like to hit some greens once in a while. They can't do it solve that problem put it back in the formula that you understand but you don't go in and make that the motive you have to have an identifiable infrastructure problem that you're solving you have to make it work on a business model you have to have uh, an investment in the future of the golf course so that it makes sense financially but if you go in and try to restore a golf course for its own sake you will get nowhere so uh, that's the, the big trick so to speak or the big task is going in and educating members to stay the way, watch what the experts are doing. We'll take your, we're curious about what you think. We want to know, sort of, you pretend to listen to them. You kind of make them involved a little bit. No surprises. You keep them informed. You don't ask them what to do. You ask them what they want to address in terms of issues and what they like as well. So you do a focus group where you have a diverse assembly or at least enough different, uh, focus groups. So you have the, the nine hole ladies group, you have the scratch golfers, the seniors, and you, cause what you never want to do is make it look like you're making the golf course suit the, the, the scratch golfers and the result. And, and the other aim you're always trying to do, you're trying to make the golf course simultaneously more difficult or potentially more difficult and challenging for the low handicapper and easier and more fun for the high handicapper. And the way to do that in every situation is to make the surface bigger and to create more options for recovery. And the other thing you do for for 50 years, they were stretching golf courses, or I'm sorry, they were lengthening golf courses. What you now have to do is stretch it so that it's both shorter and if you can get it a little longer, fine. But most golf courses have more of an issue because they're too long than they're too short. The whole emphasis on yardage and distance is a nonsense issue for 95% of golfers. Most golfers are too long from the forward tees for seniors, for everyday golfers. They're playing the golfers. Most 14 handicaps, the average handicap is 14, 13. They should not be playing 6,500 yards. They should be playing 61 or 6,200 yards. And the forward tee should be 46, 4,700 yards, not 54, 5,500 yards. So I always say, in every course that I go into, uh, how much play do you get from the back tee? And you can look at the – all you got to do is look at the divot pattern on the back tee. Nobody uses the back tee. It's 1% less of golfers. And by the way, those people are never paying for their golf. They're industry cops. They're tour pro, they're golf pros, they're college kids. So why would you spend all this time and focus and conversation on your golf course not being 7,000 yards rather than – you know what? The real problem is your front tees are fifty-six hundred yards. That's the bigger problem. So, the whole one of the things that you learn when you're trying to educate people about the golf course is for clients who use it, or for people you'd like to have as members and as clients and as daily feed consumers. Think about them. It's not about the back tees. back tee is just a scorecard, is a is a billboard. back tee is a billboard announcing, you know, championship this and that. But that's once. year one week every five years whatever it's got nothing to do with paying the bills so whenever i go into a situation um, as soon as someone starts telling me about yardage and length i i stop listening because i know they don't know what they're talking about Um, one of the things i like to show is i I talk to the women in particular your average women golfer with a handicap is 26 at a club if you think about what they're actually playing, most of them go the entire year and never hit a par five or par four in regulation. The only par threes they'll hit are with a driver or a long club. So what kind of a golf game are they playing if they're a 330-yard hole? They're, they're hitting a full third shot in with, with luck. So you have to explain to them that the game is supposed to be fun and interesting, not you know, a challenge. Those players face a challenge every time they swing the club. They don't need them to have their... golf course be more of an obstacle so you you open it up you shorten it you create entry points ground game options the high the the scratch golfer is not going to bump it in there they're going to fly it in anyway so if you have some marginal areas you expand the greens put uh, something next to the pin placement that would be a trouble spot or a fall off or a bunker that's how you make the golf course more flexible so you have to explain all that to people uh, because most people instinctively think a course should be hard or they The other thing I find is that most of the the clubs, the conversation is dominated by the low handicappers, and so the mid-high handicappers are intimidated. Uh, That's especially the case with women. When, when When you deal with a women's group, the conversation is always dominated by the lead competitive secretary who wants to have the toughest course in the circuit for the other 12 courses that they play against. And so my view is, hey, guys have three, four T's to play from. You should have two or three T's to choose from as well rather than forcing, you know, a 39 handicap playing a 5,500 yard golf, golf course, they never put for par in their life. <laughs>
0: uh, I can imagine that you've encountered some client clubs that have had made some unwise decisions that have necessitated an about face in your experience. How can clubs best avoid some of the development pitfalls that exist?
1: They should hire me.
0: That's a good answer.
1: Yeah. The, uh, Here's how to do it. If you own a car dealership and you sell a car to someone, that does not give that person the right or the ability to make judgments about how you run your car dealership. So think of it as a business. Why would you empower clients to tell you what to do with the property? The golf property is a business. I always like to say it's a great game, but a lousy business but it's a lousy business because it's run like somebody's hobby rather than as somebody's business. So the advent of professional general managers, for example, is a good thing as opposed to volunteer boards. The the, uh, professionalization of budgeting, teaching people sound business principles. So you have, for example, an operational budget. You have a long-term capital improvement budget, and then you have an equipment budget. So you start thinking about these, you treat it like a business that's got to pay for itself, that has a future, that has a client base. Now, the difference with a private club in particular is that uh, people are willing to spend a lot for the luxury of having access and control and limiting the uh, the use of the facility. So that gives you some flexibility if that's the course you want. So you can raise rates and retain your membership and invest and make sure that Golf course, you know, maybe they do 12,000 rounds a year as opposed to a public facility that's trying to do 30,000 rounds a year. So you identify what the client base is, how they utilize it, what are the budget and operational issues that you're confronting, and then think about the golf course as an asset that you're investing with a brand. And that's where the architect can come in. uh, Being a Colton Allison course or a, a McKenzie or a Ross course, that has some powerful branding component to it that you can utilize once you've done that right Um, so there's an element of that there's an element of investing you know your irrigation system is falling apart you're spending eighty thousand a year just repairing leaks you've got three guys whose job it is to make up for the failure because they're hand watering or they're or they're in ditches up to their waist fixing things you're throwing away money, and by the way, you're wasting seven hundred. Uh, you're wasting eighty thousand gallons a day of water. You need to invest two point two million in, a, in an irrigation system, or you're going to have to invest two point two million. That'll help save you, and it'll keep your operation running. You know, the irrigation system is like the the heart and the veins and the artery of your body. You better tend to that. Otherwise, if that collapses, you're dead. So. You have to treat certain things as sacred. So you, you, you try to convey these principles to people. And it's not about where the bunker's going to go or the cart path access or that, that. Those issues are technical. They solve themselves later. But if you start running a green committee where you're making decisions about what the golf course looks like as opposed to how it functions as a vital component of a business that's generating capital, you're in trouble. So you, ha- you, know, you have to look at governance. You have to look at how one becomes a green chairman. If they're appointed every year by the new president, it's a disaster. If they work their way up and learn and study and go to turf conferences and read up and become advocates for the superintendent, you have a chance. So you have to you have to look at all of these aspects of the club operation. Uh, and that's what I teach. So here's what I found. Early on, I found out, first of all, most golfers have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to a golf course. That's how I learned caddying. Second thing I learned in journalism uh, well, I learned in, is that it's a business and um, you have to treat it like a long term uh, structure that needs to be revived fixed things have a shelf life they have to be upgraded um, and you have to have a long term vision of where you're going and what your goals are a realistic one I've been in clubs where they're well we'd love to have a a major national championship. And I'm thinking, you don't even have 120 parking spots. How are you going to have a major? Forget about the golf course. You've got a a tool. You've got a dirt road access and you're nine miles from the nearest hotel. So forget that. Let's, let's, let's look at the golf course. You can get rid of some things right away.
0: Next. That's right. That's right.
1: So you, you have to have, you have to be realistic. And the most important thing is being realistic about what your identity is and what your potential is. That's the, the most important thing first that you, you need to look at it, at a golf property. And, and that's hard to do. It's hard for people to be realistic about their own assessment. So the first thing I learned is they don't know anything about the golf course. Then they, they generally don't treat it as a business. And then they generally need to be helped with a long-term plan. The other thing I learned, which is really important, is that when you have a master plan that you're implementing in a construction project you have a committee you have a board the the learning curve of those people is the project that they're doing and they don't really know all the ins and outs and nuances of contracting and engineering and uh, permitting and recovery uh, and growing they don't learn about that until the project's over now why would you then and so my job is to accelerate the learning curve so that they have a better idea of what they're doing before they get into it, rather than learning all about it as they're doing it by the seat of their pants. So what I tell them is, let's go make some visits. Go look at comparable properties where so you're interviewing an architect, which is a whole other skill set. Talk to the superintendent. Talk. Don't talk to, the, don't talk to some member about, oh, we love our golf course. Find out from the superintendent what it was like to work with that person. I know with the gm if they if they stuck to their budget or if they got if they got hit later with punitive fines by the regulatory committee because they didn't pull a permit for uh you know truck deliveries or you know they, they took out a thousand trees in a wetlands in violation of the of the tree ordinance of the town all those things happen all the time so you you need to accelerate the learning curve and that's my job is to help them understand and anticipate the issues i mean most clubs have no idea about the difference say between a standard American Institute of Architecture contract for uh, performance or a design-build model where the shaper is hired by the architect. They don't they don't know the difference. Oh, by the way, you have to test all the materials. Who's going to buy it? Well, you're going to hand that off to a contractor. They're going to charge you 15% up uh, just for acquiring it. You could save some of that money by having your superintendent go out and buy the material and stockpile it. Oh, I didn't know that. So, you know, there's a lot of that's the the other part all the sexy talk about McKenzie bunkers and Rainer bunkers it's all about material testing getting the right turf grass getting the right lab tests done in advance pulling permits make sure you have enough drainage all those technical aspects of which an architect can do with a design shaper sometimes can do and a lot of these guys on a bulldozer who shaped four courses for so and so can't do you know you need bid documents you need progress reports all those technical aspects nobody has any idea what they're getting into until you get, until you're in the middle of the project so my job is to say by the way here's what we need to think about before you even hire an architect and i can't tell you though, all the stuff you learn about how people hire architects oh my friend's a roommate my, my, i read it on the on the internet or i saw this article about this guy Who's Andrew Green? Never heard of him. Or my roommate studied landscape architecture. Or a member volunteers to do it. That's your biggest (laughs) disaster. (laughs) One of my better lines I was lecturing at Sayota Country Club uh, in anticipation of their master plan that they've now implemented. This
0: was back. Which, just to to clarify, is uh, Jack Nicholas's first uh, uh, boyhood course. Boyhood
1: course uh it's a Donald Ross course but by the time Nicholas started playing it there was no Donald Ross left it was all eviscerated well actually by 1960 it was all gone 61 it was all gone anyway and I I I kind of planted this question or asked them to ask me the first question I got was why shouldn't we hire Jack Nicholas and I said you only hire an architect you can fire or sue that's why you have a contract if you can't fire them then you're in trouble because you're beholden to them. So, that's my view of all in-house work. Don't do it. Oh, you know, my uncle's a landscape contractor. He can do it. No, can't do it. Or at least let him bid for it rather than see how qualified he is. So, you've got to teach people about all that business side of things rather than a buddy, buddy, friend teaching it as treating a golf course as a hobby. When you treat a golf course as a hobby in trouble, when you treat it as a business, even if it's a business for 29 of your best friends and you don't want to make a penny on it, fine. Let's be clear about the goals, let's be reasonable about it.
0: In terms of just walking through that process, you've established the bullshit detector. You have, <laughs> uh, you have, or uh, certainly engendered some degree of bullshit detection. You've kind of crossed out those people off the short list who say that they're an expert in? Don well, you don't Ross cross them off, Colt but you
1: just you look at it with suspicion. That's
0: all. You're you're skeptical, yeah. let's say. You've you've obviously gone out and you've looked at the work that these architects and designers have done. You've spoken to the greenkeepers. What do they like to work with, et cetera, et cetera. So at this stage, we've 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 gone through that process. We've shortlisted. We've interviewed, et cetera, et cetera. And you've come across. Um, you know, you you've made a decision. Okay, so. Ultimately, we've selected our preferred consulting architect. How important then is the master plan going forward in terms of what they're going to do? Obviously, we've established that we're focusing on issues as opposed to anything else. So sorting something out. So so I guess just how does the master plan work into that on the golf course and, and maybe any other elements that might be considered as important component parts in relation to a master well,
1: plan? Well, first, I want to I'm, I'm, be careful here. Uh, I don't want to convey the the impression that everybody in the golf industry is or a member is an idiot. That's not the case. What you do is you sort of uh, just find out who knows what they're talking about. And generally what you find, I just want to convey this. There are lots of clubs with lots of really smart, good people who have traveled, who have, they've been to Bandon Dunes. They've been to Scotland. They've, they've walked Augusta national. They've, you know, they know about shore acres. They've played Essex County club. They've taken, they've played the British, the, the open championship road all these things, so you, you work with people who have a, a love and a knowledge and an experience, and you're finding more of those at more clubs. They tend to be the younger golfers. And so I wanna say that, first of all, there are lots of people, and you ally with them. And what I always say is when you're gonna do a master plan or any kind of renovation, there's a political process where you those 10, 12 people you pick out, they are advocates, they're gonna be lobbying, they're gonna be talking to folks, they're gonna be involved, and they don't have an agenda about what the golf course is going to look like, but they know the difference between really great architecture great maintenance and just sort of normal run-of-the-mill stuff. So I want to just say that clearly. That, that yeah. a lot
0: of so, so what you're saying is they, they know where the bar is, or they know that there is a bar right. or that, as you say, they've they've traveled, they have an appreciation somewhat maybe of an understanding and maybe they know what they don't know.
1: That, that's the biggest thing. And they also know that their golf course could be a whole lot better. That's the other thing. Uh, you, you try to avoid dealing with people who think that everything's great at their place because that's the only course they've played for 40 years Uh, and the the older members tend to be a little more difficult about that the younger members have more experience so that's important second thing is I guess
0: that's back to sorry sorry, Brad that's actually back to what McKenzie talks about that every member has a fondness for his own particular mud heap
1: say that again
0: sorry uh, McKenzie said every member has a particular fondness for their own particular mud heap.
1: Right. No, I, it's a Perfect phrase. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, So let's say you've created a group or you're working with a group that has a bit of more open-mindedness and a willingness to travel, to explore, to be honest about what they have. And, and, and you can find that in most clubs. Now, prevailing is another matter because you have to convince a majority. And one of the things you do also, very important, At some point, usually at these clubs, there has to be a vote or an approval process. And you never want to do it with 51%. You need a supermajority of some sort, 60, 65, 70%. You do not go into a major renovation with a 52% of the vote. That you're going to, the club's going to fall apart politically. So you need to build a big consensus. You got to do a lot of work to build that. Now, having an architect who knows what they're doing, who's comfortable with people, comfortable with dealing with people, who knows how to, as I say, pretend to listen to people as well. All of those are skill sets. The master plan that you're asking about. Now, there are some clubs that you don't really need a master plan because it's obvious what you're going to do and you don't need to spend, I can put it in US dollars, a master plan, which is a document that Shows what the course is going to look like in ten years' day, with all the arrows and detail and you know drainage and trees and greens and all that stuff in a big, nice, colored map. Developing that plan itself is usually a, a, a is a fee attached to that of anywhere it varies tremendously from seventy five to one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. It varies with the architect, the time, whatever it doesn't matter. There are a lot of clubs I've seen that if they're properly run and it's a small bunch of issues that they have, they can just go in having, the architect will have developed a pretty comprehensive understanding, but sometimes you can sort of implement change incrementally and sneak it in in a slow way. And there are reasons you would do that. One, you might not have the two, three, four million dollars that it's going to take to implement that all, the master plan at once. Second, you might need to convince people that it's worth doing so that you well let's do the range this year and you don't need a big comprehensive master plan for some of that sometimes it helps ideally you'd have one but i've seen clubs that have successfully established a long-term working relationship with an architect so that they can just keep making incremental changes along a steady path now to do that you need solid continuous governance and a working relationship that's going to last with where that breaks down is when some people don't like what's done. They, get, they fire the architect or they, there's a change in administration and they get a new uh, vision. So you're on a little shaky ground sometimes, but I don't think that in every case this kind of elaborate grand process of developing a master plan is appropriate if they have some money that they want to use to improve the golf course as long as they know where it's going uh, in, a, in, a, in a longer-term vision. So it it varies a lot. Most clubs need that kind of guidance because you're dealing with large sums of money and you're dealing with uh, potential for changeover in the administration. But if there's a solid working, and the the surest evidence of a well-governed club is that the the general manager or the secretary, the golf professional, and the course manager or superintendent are all on the same page. If they're on the same page and they've been there and they're committed and the other key there is you have to have a superintendent who's interested in making changes. I've seen too many courses where the superintendent is kind of, what's the word, uh, floating or uh, trying to make their life easier and and they're at the end of their career path or they've been there for 32 years and they don't really have the uh, incentive. That's not going to work. But if you've got a young working collaborative relationship at those three levels gm golf professional and course manager then you can do this alternative path generally it helps to have a larger plant because you can get a lot more done especially if you're dealing with big infrastructure issues you can't just you know nickel and dime drainage and irrigation that's got that's usually a, a massive investment and uh, you also run into the trouble, and I've seen this, and I'm working at a club right now that has this, where we did one hole, and beautiful job. We did it five years ago, and we did another hole two years ago, and now we're stalled. So, you know, you want to make sure you're making progress. But the, 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 the thing about a master plan is it gives you this big, comprehensive vision that has layer, literally in, in the documentation, has layers of what the cart paths are going to look like, what the erosion control plan would look like, bunkers, cross-sections, greens, scale, so that you can plant, and that helps you buy equipment. You might need a phrase mower for the fescue roughs. You might need a a hydraulic greens mower because you're you're expanding your greens from 5,000 square feet to 8,000 square feet. There are lots of ways in which the master plan allows you. It also allows you capital planning so that the finance committee can go find... How to figure out financing three, four, five million dollars? Um, sometimes you can borrow some of it, sometimes you have an assessment, sometimes you have a capex fund that's been built up. There, also, you, you need to know where that's going financially. So, the master plan allows you to do financial planning in a long term way. Um, so, the, that's the big advantage. The slight disadvantage is that there's some upfront cost, but ultimately, the cost of a master plan kind of uh, disappear into the long-term operating budget of a golf course. So even at $100,000, which is at the high end, very high end of a master plan, uh, it's going to sort of disappear into places. So one of the things I always tell people, particularly when you're looking for an architect, don't worry about the fee up front. You negotiate that. But when you're looking for an architect and you send out a request for proposals or qualifications or information, whatever it's called, and they're different, the RFI, the RFP, the RFQ. Don't ask for fees up front. It doesn't matter. Um, you might want that as a comparison basis, but if you make a decision on the basis of fees of the master plan, you're making a big mistake. That's the one percent, two percent, it dissolves very quickly.
0: I guess heretofore, we've spoken very generally. Uh, uh, theoretically in terms of uh, in terms of all of this and i i, I think you were a, an after dinner speaker at the Cal club in 2003 and this speaking engagement arguably led to one of the finest historically based reinstatements of the golf course that to date has taken place in the usa i understand that the change a, a change in culture and focus played a huge role in facilitating the, this transformation can you speak to what you know about this and how it was facilitated
1: well all the credit for that goes to al jameson a member who drove the process for 15 years and put his uh, i always joked about it it was weird for him to be paying dues while he was taking that kind of abuse but uh that's what it takes and in every club it takes somebody to drive the process uh, and al jameson was that figure who was determined that the cal club which had it was an old um Vernon McCann McKenzie course that had and then been kind of compromised by Robert Trent Jones senior and had grown in and had lost all of its bunkering and its character. He was determined to show people what was possible. And it helped one year that they lost about a thousand trees through a storm and kind of revealed some of the ground features. But I came in there and basically gave a talk about the value of restoration. We found some old aerials of the golf course, and it was just a matter of opening up at that time the club to the possibility of change. Now, the, the club culture at the time, Cal Club was a second membership club for a lot of people. So it was a men's club. And um, so it was a little more sophisticated membership than you'd find at a lot of places because they were there because they loved golf. It was not about the swimming pool and tennis courts. I don't think they had any. Uh, plus, they had an unbelievable... Superintendent Tom Bastus, who went on to become one of the chief agronomists for the PGA Tour, but at the time, uh, he was one of these. He was one of these um, outdoor naturalist guys who, who, for a hobby, he'd go into the woods for three days with a, you know, a Bowie knife and a candy bar, and come back with a log cabin on his back that he'd built. Uh, (laughs) He was one of these
0: bear grills type. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: So he was a no-nonsense guy, and he knew his stuff. So between them and the manager, they were able to basically define a process and really pursue a vision. Uh, And then they were, in in Kyle Phillips, they found a guy who had an imagination so that they turned one of their dump piles into the tee for one of the great Cape Hole par fours in the world, the uh, seventh pole at the Cal Club. It was nothing but a pile of dirt and it was off above the range and no one had given it any thought at so whatsoever so it was a process it was a combination of a vision driven by a determined small group of people and a membership that could have that wasn't really uh what's the word invested in the power game or politics of a club because they were just using it as a recreational outpost so they weren't the kind of micro managers that you see at a lot of clubs um and they were there for golf they weren't there for anything else there wasn't one of these places that was handed down from families or that you were trying to keep everybody happy um, and so they could take time and they took a year off shut down the golf course um and i have to say that kyle phillips vision was pretty ballsy because he was rerouting three four holes creating reversing directions putting a range where the old eighth hole was i mean it was really um, creative effort on his part as well and he was local so it helped plus he has a great design history at the time he had already done Kings barns and um, a lot of other fine golf courses um, so that uh, and, and he had worked under Robert Trent Jones for a long time and learned about routing and rerouting and I this is the biggest thing you, when you hire an architect this is the the, the real skill I don't have it um, Average members certainly don't have it. They can reroute a golf course in their head and see where things could go. And I'm continually amazed at the ability of these people to do that. I try all the time when I see a property to figure out. I can do it sometimes, but it's a pretty gutsy thing to be able to, first of all, see it on the land, see it on paper, make it work, make sure your slopes are less than 7%, make sure it's all connected. That's a vision and a skill. It's really a vision that... Only a few architects really have. I and when you find someone like Kyle Phillips, who he loves to do that sort of thing. And uh, it was that, plus they also had some land. They were lucky enough to have enough land that was being used internally. You've, you've, you rarely find that at golf courses. And unfortunately, one of the big mistakes a lot of clubs have is they sell off peripheral land for the cash and then use it to, you know, put new lockers in the, the new chairs in the clubhouse and they've squandered the land. Cal Club had had that rare uh, asset of having unused land internal to the property. And uh, the result was just stunning. Plus, they just went back and got old photographs and rebuilt all those old McKenzie bunkers from 19, I think 1926. Um, And they took out a lot of trees, too. That's always a a key to the process. Um, But it was driven by a couple of people and some factors that, not most close, and they had a lot of money too, so the money wasn't the issue. It was just the willingness to shut down for a long period and completely reimagine and yet to recapture. That's the key. It takes a boldness of vision to go back to what you used to be, and um, it, but in a more dramatic way.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned additional land. I know uh, the Inverness Club and and actually yeah. Andrew Green, who you mentioned a while ago, yeah. they were fortunate insofar as they had that extra yeah. land. Uh, similar set of idea there in terms of reimagining a Ross I think
1: yeah there are not many clubs that have 100 acres sitting there unused um, which Inverness had in or now their new second green, third, fourth fifth holes. Um, and Inverness is the classic example of a golf course that destroyed itself by modernizing in order to hold the US Open and it caused bitterness for 40 years at that club and they finally addressed it in a brilliant way um, and, um, you know, in most clubs, they're working within a parcel. But the other thing is architects are able to, what you find at a lot of clubs is that there are small pieces, a half acre here, a quarter acre, an acre over there that are not being used, but they're scattered and disconnected. And so architects can sometimes be good at finding ways to move a grain or move a fairway or a tee in such a way that it opens up access to that unused parcel that would not have been the case before. And yeah. um, uh, that's what happened at Congressional, for example. Um, okay. Where they found room for the uh, the 10th Hall, which is the Part 3 that had always been moved around here and there, everywhere. Um, so uh, it's an interesting skill set that they have, and, and, and you have to allow them to, to do that. I think in too many cases with a master plan, there are people, you know, what do they call it? Too many cooks uh, in the, in the kitchen, and they need to pull back. You know, you, what you do with with a master plan development is you engage the members to find out what they like. You, it's like you, if you want to use the kitchen analogy, you find out what kind of food they like, but you don't ask them how to cook it. <laughs>
0: That's a lovely, a lovely analogy. Well, so it is.
1: Yeah, never used it before.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well you may you may use it again so I probably will um listen you you mentioned the cape holes there in um the cal club example and and that's a nice little segue into uh your involvement uh at bandon dunes and all mac um the concept of an ideal golf hole was something that the architect charles blair Macdonald borrowed from the united kingdom and brought back to america can you give us a little introduction on, on how McDonald and his associates Seth Raynor and Charles Banks selected these ideal representations and then recreated the ideal holes of the British Isles in designing and building what we would now know and class as template holes?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. Um, the first thing is that um, Charles Blair MacDonald really is the father of American golf course architecture. And he learned from his uh, early days in Scotland, in his, uh, would have been late 1856, so it was, I I guess, his school days, late school days, late college days or university days, which he didn't attend, he was playing golf all the time, uh, that there was something charming and amazing about the old course. Um, And he comes back to the United States or to North America, because he was Canadian, and he found that everything was lacking in terms of what he had seen versus what he was seeing in the United States. And so he went back to the British Isles and to France uh, with a sketchpad and basically said, What are the holes that I find really interesting or that other people are always talking about that have a lot of compelling quality? And then he drew them. And then he came to the United States on that sandy site on Long Island, and he built a version of them. But what's interesting is if you go back to some of the originals that he looked at, if you look at them now, you kind of wonder, what was he looking at? Because things have changed. (laughs) So I'll never forget Little Stone on the south coast of England, which I was a consultant at. And I was all excited to see, um, I think it was their 17th hole, the Cape Par, it might have been the 16th hole, the the Cape Par 5. Uh, the um, uh, split fairway, the alternative fairway, par five, and you go there today. It's like, oh, wait a minute, I don't even see this here. So things had evolved, but what? Um, so it's not always easy to find today what McDonald was looking. This was a century ago, because uh, some of the holes have changed. But what McDonald did more than any other, and he handed it down to his protege, Seth Rayner, was he took basic principles of angular choice, character, variety. And he sketched out a kind of ideal type of that whole. And then he built versions of it uh, in the, the United States. The best, uh, I love Tom Doak's explanation of visiting a McDonald' Rayner course. He said, it's like having friends and seeing the, the seeing them again after a long time and seeing how they're doing. And they've changed they've grown you know their hair is gray uh they're not feeling as well maybe that whatever analogy breaks down a little bit but it was still the notion and i think uh, they they had essentially it's like they had a a a portfolio of 24 or 25 courses and it was a matter of which 18 you were going to get and they always had a short hole part three they always had a, a, a redan hole you know 15th and north berwick uh they usually had a beer although um i don't think there's a beer part three at national <laughs> but um
0: that's the that's the two the two-tiered green with the trough in the
1: middle uh right. the um, double plateau yeah, yeah they yeah. had a, an alps hole a sahara they had a long hole from the 15th, from the 14th so they had ver- st Andrews. they had versions of these but they're all different they're all varied um and, you know, I've seen some of Rainer. So Charles Blair MacDonald, who lived uh, 1856 to 1939, uh, <clears throat> did this as an amateur. He handed a lot of his portfolio over to Seth Rayner, who was a civil engineer based in Southampton. He was town of Southampton, civil engineer. Uh, he had a short life. He only lived... Uh, um, only lived 52 years. He died in 1926. So he's 1874 to, 19, to um, 1926. And in a short period, built some brilliant golf courses, Chicago golf. He rebuilt shore acres, for example, is his. Um, and I always find what's interesting about Rangers is he really didn't play golf and his work got more linear and more engineered and more manufactured as he went along in his quick career. Uh, because he never saw the originals. He never went to England or Scotland or the Beirut's Hall in France. So he became a little bit more of the mechanical version, uh, but always very bold vision, uh, like at Mountain Lake, for example, down in the south of Orlando. And Charles Banks was, as I remember, and I'm, I'm was an English professor, I think at the Hotchkiss School. I don't think he was at Yale. I think he was at the Hotchkiss School in the northwest corner of Connecticut which is not far from me. It's only 50 miles from, me, from my house. And he was a schoolmaster there. Um, and somehow he, as a, as a fan, you know, who can imagine an, the idea of an academic going into golf course architecture? Can't imagine that.
0: Perish the toss. Yeah, really. Uh, but he, <laughs> he
1: left uh, the confines, the cardigan sweater and the uh, knit-tie confines of academia to uh, become a golf course architect in his own right and picked up and... Uh, the portfolio that had been dropped, so to speak, or that, le- that Rainer left when he died early in, uh, in his career. So the succession, and uh, in some ways, the portfolio of holds uh, was fairly set, but the iterations of them were totally different, uh, depending on the site. At Yale, for example, um, there's massive terrain, big, expansive, dramatic hills as opposed to a dead flat site like Country Club of Fairfield, for example. Um, or there's a rainer course, in Baltimore, Elk something, I, I can't remember the name, um, where you look at the, 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 they have a redan hole on a dead flat piece of land. It's like, what? What is this? So you sort of, they varied a lot, but the mechanical principles, the angularity, uh, the character of these big green swells, and a lot of the character was built into the greens. So when we were, when I was involved at Old McDonald, this was uh, Mike Kaiser, owner developer of Bandon Dunes, had the idea. Was always fascinated by Rainer and McDonald and their famous short-lived epic golf course on Long Island called the Lido Club. Lido Club was built in a swamp marshland, was reclaimed. You could never have built a golf course like that anymore because it was essentially destroying a wetland to create an upland. So, uh, and I grew up right down the road from the Lido Club. So when I was 14 or 15, well, when I was driving, I was 17, first thing I did when I got my driver's license, I drove over to the Lido Club to look at it. And I'm thinking, what? There's nothing left of it. And then you sort of find out that the golf course only existed from 1919 to 1939. It was recreated in effect by Robert Trent Jones after the war, but it was literally picked up and moved a half mile so that none of the, there's almost no overlapping terrain. And he, re, he created some of the holes, but not very well. Anyway, so that was a big disappointment. But I started reading a lot about the history of that famous project, which was really the effort by McDonald and Rainer to literally dredge a site out of nothing to create these all template holes. That was the course that Mike Kaiser was fascinated by, tried to recreate or find the land for. He actually went all through Long Island, at one point and talked to state officials about a couple of properties that might be an appropriate site. He finally found it uh, out at Bandon Dunes on the north side of Pacific Dunes. So it was gonna be the, uh, the fourth course there. Abandoned Dunes by David Kidd had opened up in 1999, followed by Pacific Dunes by Tom Doak in 2001, and then Cora Crenshaw's Abandoned uh, Trails opened up in 2005, What's he going to do next? He's going to do a version of a McDonald Rainer golf course. It wasn't quite the alignment that would allow for a physical reproduction of the Lido course in terms of the whole location and position, but it was enough of a dramatic piece of land that he could recreate some of those so-called template holes. Now, the important thing to remember, the template name is uh, – the. The idea of a template is a little bit misleading because it makes it sound like a stamp. It's more like an inspiration. So you find the principal's nose on the opening hole. You find uh, a Beeritz out at number eight from a tremendous elevation. You find a Redan hole uh, that ended up being a little narrower than the original, a lot narrower than the original. So all of the versions of it were different. But, um, you know, the hell, the, the, uh, the, the long sixth hole, which was a version of the long 14th St. Andrews, but hell bunker, uh, you had to go around on the left side rather than on the right side. So, but the inspiration was there. And so I had a very modest role there. That's a course that um, Tom Doak and Jim Urbina co-designed. And I'll never forget, they sent me, um, I I was uh, recruited to be involved because I was working full-time at Golf Week at the time. I had to donate my, had to (laughs) donate my fee to charity rather than pocket it. Okay, fine. Um, But um, we worked to, my job was essentially to remind them of how it would be perceived by Raiders and how the importance of historical continuity required them to uh, pay homage and to be playful, uh, but also to make it work. Now, they didn't need me to do the golf. Could have done a perfectly good job, but I kind of kept pushing them. So I was occasionally, as we say, whispering in the ear of the prince. It's one of the ways in historical political world, you kind of influence things you may not shout it you may not go politically campaign you quietly whisper in the ear of the prince
0: uh, that's very shakespearean of you yeah
1: well i tried it with doke and he wasn't all that open so i started talking to urbina and uh, urbina and i uh-huh. established a very nice you know, that was my way of communicating and also i is, spent a is lot
0: jim morse is jim more suggestive yeah well in terms of taking a suggestion in terms of whispering
1: doke's mind works differently than almost anybody i've ever seen because it, okay. he appears to have a kind of tension deficit disorder. So he's, but he's actually thinking of a lot of things simultaneously. And it's nothing for him to be on the fourth grain. And he's sitting there for four hours, looking at the grain and all of a sudden he runs over to the seventh T and he realizes the bunker needs to so, and you're trying to talk to him about 16. And yeah. so you would say things to dope, and he wouldn't respond. And he might come back a week later uh, or not. <laughs> And I kind of found it frustrating, uh, particularly because I was only out there about seven times maybe for two days each. Uh-huh. So I was running around trying. But I found Urbina very open-minded, and I found Mike Kaiser very open-minded about things. So here's an example. Um, the uh, the 14th hole, the short uphill dogleg left, I kept – I looked at it and I thought, this is crazy severe. Wait, And I kept telling Mike – Kaiser, I said, this has to you gotta soften this. Just melt it down. And I guess they did. It's hard to tell. But I, I could convey to Mike. Or Mike had thought about putting a burn on the seventeenth hole in the, the Lido Par five alternate fairway. The channel hole, it's called the channel hole. And I said at dinner one time, uh Steve I think it's uh, Steve Goodman has it in his book about abandoned dreams, and he's got the story slightly wrong. Um, uh, I said to Mike at dinner with everybody, I said, you can't introduce an element like a burn in the 17th hole. You've got to sort of show it in earlier. It's too shocking, and it's too out of character with the rest of the golf course. So I was. they asked me, I told them, or I had thought about it. And then at one point, fairly late in the process, I realized there were no forced carry bunkers on the whole golf course. So oh. I went to Urbina, and he looked at me, he says, tell Tom Doak. So I went to Doak, I said, why don't you put a force carry bunker on the 18th hole? There's a perfect spot for it. And he said, go flag it out. Wow. So I went wow. and flagged it out. And uh, he came back and said, um, interesting. I know, he, he didn't say interesting idea. All he said was, got to be bigger. And so it ended up being about four times the size of what I had staked out to fill up a big space. So I'm proud to say that Klein's Bunker is on the 18th hole. And, of course, one time. Excellent. It's only about a.
0: It's called Klein's Bunker, is it?
1: Uh, it is when I play it. That's what you That's call, what it, anyway. call it anyway. Yeah. And, Excellent. And I actually Excellent. I put it in such a place that even I wouldn't hit it. Uh, it's only about okay. 140 yards off the tee, right in front of you. So here's the other moment I was going to tell you about the uh, – they had done early on they had done a routing plan you know and i have it here uh yeah i have it on the wall Uh, but this is a preliminary drawing and me being the genius that i was i went and scaled it all in and sent him a hole by hole yardage card and he writes back he says i never want to see anything like this again that was dope (laughs) and i thought okay it didn't bother him that the back nine was 400 yards longer than the front just like it you know you think about pacific dunes dokes good golf course design is, is all about imbalance and irregularity you think about all these golf courses that are par 36 36 turning nines all the holes are different mm. you know kind of formula mm. dokes mm. all over the place it didn't bother him for example at pacific dunes at the back nine has four par threes only two par fours didn't matter and just like it didn't matter at old mcdonald that uh, the, the the nines were completely imbalanced in yardage and that uh, the last four holes were all 500 yards or virtually 480 to 575 didn't bother him at all. So I learned. Mm-hmm. All right. So the point of that is I was there on an advisory basis kind of reminding them about how Raiders would see it, how the public would see it. Uh, and I was sort of tweaking a little bit, but, it's their golf course and you know uh, although golf digest does have me on there along with carl olson who was a turf advisor and um george botto who was a historical consultant who wrote the book on mcdonald and who was really uh, very involved in mapping out the holes from the originals uh, that mcdonald and Rayner had seen uh-huh. so it was a very nice collaborative effort actually uh, it was very interesting. I, I give Mike cre- uh, Chrysler all the credit in the world for being open-minded about that, and I'm very proud to have been involved in that. Just you know, little mo- modest way. P-
0: picking up on your uh, your 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 mention of of rating, um the five-time Open champion winner, Open Championship winner, should I say, Peter Thompson often bemoaned golf design throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, likening much of it to fins on Cadillacs. This commentary appears to have been focused primarily on excessive use of white sand, lakes and glitzy features such as waterfalls and, dare I say, paths. <laughs> I believe the very first magazine ratings measured the hardest courses, not the most interesting, the longest, not the most playable or fun. Would you agree with Mr. Thompson, first of all, and his assessment about courses built during this period? Oh,
1: yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I think the first Golf Digest List 1966 was the hardest golf courses in the United States, or the toughest, something like that. Yeah, uh-huh. it was. Um, and it was, you know, I don't know if you remember, but in the late '60s, there were some golf courses out in the California desert that had colored sand. Even on the tour for the what? Bob Hope Classic, they would have uh, they were blue and red and you know they were experimenting wow. with all sorts of junk. Um, uh-huh.
0: Before my time, Brad, ah, to be fair. Okay. I born in born 76, so, so not, not, not guilty. You didn't miss Not anything, guilty, no. but yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but golf course design was about challenge, difficulty, and mm. it was not about that kind of emotional engagement that I spoke about at the opening. The, 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 one of the um, ironies, golf design's a hard tra- craft. Peter Thompson didn't really fulfill in his own design portfolio the vision that he had of what golf design ought to be. Uh, He was more of a, how should I put it, Uh, there was something missing in the implementation of his own design portfolio over the years.
0: You created the Golf Week magazine system of ranking, obviously modern and classic courses in the USA. To your mind, what elements should play into writing a golf course's merits in terms of either a magazine or indeed, obviously, from a writer and a player's perspective? The,
1: the simplest criterion is how much of a memorable experience was it to spend three and a half or four hours uh, what we call, uh, on that property? We call it the walk in the park factor. Um, or, uh, I, I privately call it the Janie Factor. I named it after my wife because she loves coastal environments. She loves walking interesting environments. She's a certified uh, gardener, profe- uh, educated horticulturalist. and she hates. She doesn't like golf at all. Thank goodness. So it's separate worlds to some extent. But she appreciates landforms and landscapes. So I always literally think about a golf course: as how interesting would be? It, how interesting is it for Janie to walk that golf course by herself? That's to me a great test. It's not about the shots you hit, although those are memorable or the few that work out. Um, And maybe this is my own self-justification because I'm not a very good golfer. I've never, I've always been on the verge of being able to play competently, but never quite. But to me, it's about how cool was it to spend three, four hours out there and look around and feel like I was doing something interesting as opposed to grinding away or struggling or, uh, just trying to register a score, and that to me is a is a really great test and what, The thing I hammered home with all the Raiders for years was do not judge a golf course by how you play it don't judge it by how well your score is or how suitable it is for the shots you hit. Think of it as an experience in which you um, you remember what it felt like and this is one of the oddities of my own writing i I take almost no notes when I'm evaluating a golf course. I never did. Uh, I convey certain, I try to remember certain feelings and sensibilities about what I had when I was facing certain shots, but not, I don't sit there and, you know, and and describe this, that. Um, Later on, I'll get things like elevation, yardage, uh, elevation, area, square footage, topography, that kind of grasses, that kind of stuff. But, I don't sit there and take notes. I, I certainly don't comment. in a. If I can't remember it, then I'm not going to be able to convey it in writing. And if it's so detailed that I have to really describe it, I won't. And here's the other thing. Uh, in all I've written a lot, I've never described it awful. I don't believe in it. I think it. you describe the feeling you have or the sensibility or the the shape and the character of, the experience rather than four-iron. You know, you, you look at these stupid yardage books, 530-yard hole, Eagle Opportunity, or the 330-yard drivable par-four. You think, who is this written for? Or, uh, you know, this is a driver four-iron. Kind of garbage. And I actually love watching other golf writers just the right golf architecture. I love it because it's...
0: Safe to say you don't copyright those uh, those uh, those tips in the, in the course That's guides. That's
1: right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, most people try to describe a golf hole and the an answer who you're describing it for you can't because your readership is not thinking about a 330 they can't drive at 330 yards they can't reach a par five and two so and they can't not, you know so you might say a long iron or a short iron but you got to be really careful so i don't i what i just talk about is the variety you got long holes short holes and every course should have them um and you know some of the most memorable holes are short where you have a chance of driving a pitch rather than struggling to get on in three. So um, what I teach uh, and educate people is about the experience you have because that's really what um, you can convey to other people meaningfully. So you can't describe a golf ball meaningfully to someone who hasn't been there, and if they've been there, they don't need it.
0: I'm I'm struck, obviously, depending on the magazine, or the publication, should I say? Uh, you might just briefly explain the differences between Golf Week, Golf Digest, and Golf Magazine. In fact, even if they do differ, I believe they do, but maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Uh,
1: well, <laughs> I don't read them very often anymore. Um, generally, Golf Week is for insiders in the industry, serious golfers, people in the business, golf uh, people who make a living in the golf world, or who. Mm, uh, who spend a lot of money traveling and collecting uh, bag tags. Uh, golf Digest is more for the uh, avid golf fan and someone who's interested in learning to improve their game and who follows the tour. And generally, Golf Magazine is a similar profile. Uh, now, that's different than their rating, but that's the audience for the readership seems so quaint these days to talk about leadership of a print product. but uh,
0: There there aren't many left. No,
1: and I have to say uh, you at Golf Week, we never imagined back in 2010 that Golf Week would outlive what we knew at that point to be the Golf Channel. That's an amazing... Uh I I give them all the credit in the world. They're not Golf Week anymore. They're Golf Month, but still, they're publishing and they're doing a very good job on the web, tour coverage. Uh, Eamon Lynch is one of the Smartest, sharpest, uh, gutsiest commentators in the golf industry. I love reading his stuff. Beth Ann, uh, with her coverage of Nichols. the women's tour and amateur yeah. golf, is brilliant. Um, I go to them all the time.
0: Um, uh, Eamon's certainly having a purple patch at the moment with his uh, his commentary. It's been very uh, um, pointy. Oh yeah, shall we he's say.
1: not afraid. Yeah. yeah,
0: no. I don't think he'll. Another good Irishman.
1: I don't think he'll be covering uh, any of the Saudi events in the next few years.
0: I wouldn't have thought so. He might be on Mr. MBS's hit list. That's obviously a joke, but nothing's a joke, as we know.
1: Anyway,
0: <laughs> um. I believe he. I was listening to to a as a complete aside. I was listening to a podcast today with uh, Brandon Porat and Andy Johnson, the the shotgun mm-hmm. stars. And apparently, MBS was was um, interviewed recently, and uh, he apparently has a list of the top one hundred people he'd like to kill.
1: I think it's good for we all have a list like that. Um <laughs> I uh, I have a, you know most people use the uh the ratings list to figure out the top 100 courses they want to play. Uh, to me that's a little yeah. bit more um, of a benign proceeding. I have to say this,
0: whatever floats your boat, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when
1: we started the uh the, the golf week uh, ratings list back in um 94 I had just written a couple of columns basically saying that golf ratings destroy the character of the game they lead to too much expense they lead to false expectations and they're not a good thing and my publisher's response was let's do a list and i thought oh i guess you haven't been reading my columns um but what we decided to do was to do it right (laughs) and so instead of trying to emphasize a list that promoted difficulty or expense or aesthetics or beauty we decided we were going to you know, golf week back then was kind of an up and coming product. We thought we could compete with golf digest, get our name branded and, and in circulation. So we created, I created a list that the criteria were completely different and they were about complexity, variety, uh, curiosity, historic value, uh, aesthetic appeal. And that's what we created. And it worked. And in within 10, 12 years, we were being talked about on a par with, uh, golf digest and golf magazine. And I, I um, consider that to be one of my real uh, journalistic achievements. Um, so I was very proud of that. develop you know, you, you have to create criteria of evaluation. Uh-huh. How many different clubs did you hit for a par three? Uh, do you remember this? To me, the best test of a par five is how interesting is the second shot?
0: 100%. Um,
1: did you have a variety of approaches and angles and distances on par fours? You know, you see some all these courses I played where they have ten par fours and eight of them are three hundred eighty yards from my middle tee. It's like, why can't you have? As opposed to, I was just I'm involved at another Donald Ross nine hole golf course up in Worcester, Tacnet Country Club, and they've got a four hundred forty yard uphill par four, followed by a 255-yard downhill par four. And I'm thinking, that's variety. That's really cool. Yeah. So that kind of stuff is more interesting than, you know, how how much were you grinding your teeth when you had to hit a forced carry over a pond and two bunkers to a green that was 3,000 square feet.
0: (laughs) It's the stuff you remember at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah. 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 This is this is usually the point where I ask guests to tell me their top five golf courses. So I suspect, having heard you been asked that question, bef- particular question before, that you're going to deflect that, so I'm going to ask it a slightly different way. If you knew the end of the world was coming, and by God, with Putin doing what he's doing, it might well be, but let's hope not, what five courses would you choose if you had five individual rounds left to play before the end of the oh,
1: world? I'm going to deflect on this one. This is my classic response. Which oh, dear. Is- I... I, I because if the end of the world were coming I would not waste my time playing golf holes I'd be walking around with my grandkids and my wife and doing all sorts of lovey-dovey things so there you go
0: of, of course of course of course of so course. I can tell you so. this
1: Here, there are some golf courses I haven't played that I really want to play and that's really uh-huh. that to me is I, and just to go back I was once asked about my three favorite golf courses and I didn't name Augusta National and the guy says what no, Augusta National. I said, You idiot. You asked for three. If you wanted nine, I would maybe include it. <laughs> so people always ask that question in order to fight. But I prefer to think about the courses because I've played all over the world. Um, yeah. And uh, I want to play more Fontaine in Paris. Uh, okay. I have a great regard for, for Simpson. I really want to. It's
0: play- one of Mike one Clayton's favorites. So, so you're in very good company there. I want
1: to go back to the North west of ireland because when i played Carn okay. and inniskrone on consecutive yeah. days it was uh, in a 50 mile an hour rainstorm and i didn't see a thing
0: i can imagine sideways rain atlantic west coast seaboard in ireland absolutely atrocious so i want
1: to go back that'll
0: that'll, bl- that, that'll blow your, your umbrella inside out
1: well i don't even think i took an umbrella on that trip knowing what was going to happen
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: so i want to play those courses again um, oddly
0: enough. And if you're there if you're there you have to head up north and play doke's new one in St. Patrick's which is a which is a a, a superstar. That's right
1: sports. next to Rossapena.
0: That's that's part of the Rossapena resort, yeah, the really. Role. Yeah. Under under slightly different uh, obviously it's a slightly different property, right. but yeah, it's it's at the end if you if you've played the old time I love that nine. It's at yeah. the yeah, it's at the end of that valley. There's a there's a dune head, it's just it's just over yeah. that. It's on three hundred and seventy acres, it's probably one of the best Sites I've ever seen for golf.
1: Oddly enough, even though it's only 110 miles away, I've never played Myopia Hunt Club. So wow. I, that's, okay. that's just a stupid, you know, it's, it's like I always like to say there, I, I got to leave some gaps because the only three really outstanding local, uh, I mean, uh, top 100 whatever courses I haven't played uh, the old variety, I haven't played Catanzet Club, which is only 80 miles away. <laughs> um, I haven't played uh, Eastward Ho and Myopia Hunt, so mm. I, those are on my list. I'll get there, you
0: know. are leaving some of the best for last, Bradley. Uh,
1: well, I also want to play uh, in uh, the Netherlands along the coast because okay. all those courses look really fascinating to me.
0: They do, uh, um, U- Utrecht, the Pan, and um, Hilversum, and uh, yeah, there's four or five of them there on uh, cult, cult, and awesome. delight delightful, delightful places. Well, thank you for sharing, and that, I want to thank you play. for not deflecting I it too think much.
1: It's, is it Haley Island? There's a, um, on the south coast of England. <clears throat> H-
0: Hailing Island, I and think That is, is another one though. I yeah, want to yeah.
1: play. It looks absolutely fascinating. Okay. So those are the courses that I, if we have a few more days and I can yeah. fly out there, I would love to play those. Uh, I'd also love okay. to get back to Prairie Dunes, which I've been to several times and I think it's absolutely stunning. Um, so that's what I think about. I think about the courses I'd like to get to before Okay, it's too, and also El Saler in Barcelona.
0: Okay, okay, is that a is is that a, 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 a who designed that? Do you know?
1: I'm not going to remember the name. It's, um
0: Javier Arana, yes, Arana, maybe? Yeah, there we go. Okay, so uh, the last and final question that I always ask guests relates to book recommendations, and I know you're a you're a you're a avid reader. You might recommend two golf books to the listeners. The books might expand their minds or indeed just simply entertain them?
1: Um, well, certainly Robert Hunter's The Links is uh, just about the best golf course architecture book. Mm-hmm. And um, Arnold Haltane's The Mystery of Golf is the best little account of how crazy the game is. He was a Canadian writer from the 1930s or 40s. And it's a tiny little book called The Mystery of Golf by Arnold Hall Tane. Those are the two, uh, what's the word, uh, lesser known books that I think uh, live on and reveal a lot of the character of the sport that I find very inspiring and then I go back to.
0: Thank you. Before we conclude, you might tell people where they can buy your new book and, indeed, if any of your other new, other books are still in print and where they can buy those. In addition, you might also let us know where we can read more of your writings and where we might find you online.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I should be better about all this. So uh, the book that, I, that lives on 20 years later is Discovering Donald Ross. It's available both on Amazon and on my website, which is, strangely enough, www.discoveringdonaldross.com. So that's a big item. I think it's worth investing in. Um, my articles appear now regularly and every month in an in, in industry magazine called Golf Course Industry. I write regularly for the USGA Green Section Record, uh, Links Magazine. And uh, I've got this book coming out on Citizenship After Trump. That's uh, in Routledge Press. Comes out in six weeks, and it's available pre-order on Amazon. So, um, and I have a website, which is uh, bradleykleingolf.com. So, if people want to reach me for design consulting or anything else, or just catch up and uh, disagree with me, great. Um, I tend I'm on Twitter quite a bit. Uh, My Twitter handle is bradley s klein. I don't like arguing with people on Twitter. I like expressing views and sort of goofing with people, but never fighting or disagreeing with them. I, I just don't think that's very productive. So don't, don't, uh, you know, uh, those Twitter spats, the mirror's kind of a waste. But
0: I think you'd rather have a fight face-to-face, yeah?
1: Yeah, over a beer or uh, on yeah. the third grain.
0: Listen, Bradley Klein, it's been a joy to speak with you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I hope the listeners have learned something new or at the very least have been left with a few questions to ponder go easy mate
1: well, thank you very much
0: many thanks to Bradley once again for his time we really do hope you enjoyed the listen remember you can find us online at firmandfast.golf, on twitter at firmandfastgolf, and on instagram at Podcast. We've got some cracking guests lined up over the next number of weeks. So please subscribe, review, and share. And until the next time, happy golfing.